forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! This is how a podcast starts. What I'm going to do is go around and ask you each to introduce yourself into the microphone so the listener knows what you sound like, and tell us some places they may have seen your name. Uh, on their TV screen or on their bookshelf, as the case may be. And Valerie, let's start with you. My name is Valerie Armstrong, and uh, you have not seen my name all that often. Um, in back credits as assistants on a few shows on Masters of Sex, um, and SEAL Team on CBS was my first uh, staff writing job, and then on Lodge 49. I, and give your new show a plug coming soon. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. And I wrote, uh, <laughs> I wrote, I'm brand new at this. Uh, definitely, clearly my first rodeo. Um, I executive produced and created Kevin Can Fuck Himself for AMC. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, and you have, do you have a premiere date yet? We premiere on AMC Plus on June 13th and then okay. on AMC Proper on June 20th. Okay, so as as people are listening to this, they can tune in within the week. Um, Annie, fantastic! Please introduce yourself. Tell us where we've seen your name on our television screens. Hi there, um, my name is Annie Wiseman, and I've been a um, longtime playwright and TV writer. I you may have seen my name and on shows such as Desperate Housewives, The Path. Uh, some other things more recently, um, but I'm currently about to launch physical on Apple TV Plus on June 18th. And I created the show, and I executive produce it, and it stars Rose Byrne. And I'm so happy to be here with all of yeah, you folks. Congratulations. Thanks so much. Congrats. Yeah, congrats. Uh, and again, the show is really good. Um, I'm so happy to have the three of you here, and, and we'll talk about why in a moment. There are a lot of overlaps in all of your new shows, but Lauren, please introduce yourself. Um, I'm Lauren Oliver. Um, I've written a lot of books that maybe you read in high school. <laughs> um, no, but uh, yeah, a lot of books, um, primarily for young adults, not exclusively. And then I recently, um, and I maybe you have seen my name associated with my company Glasstown, which also helps other people um, launch their careers in books. Um, and then I recently created and executive produced a show called Panic on Amazon Prime. So. Um, which I so enjoyed. Uh, I just blew through it in like five days or something. Thank it's such you. a fun show. Um, so thank you all for being here. Um, the thing I wanted to start off talking about is getting your current shows to the screen. I want to talk about pitching because these are weird shows. Um, so <laughs> what I'm going to ask you to do is, and Valerie, let's start with you on this. Can you just give like the two sentence description of uh, Kevin can fuck himself, but then take us through the pitch process and, and uh, then we'll have the same from everyone. Sure. Uh, Kevin can fuck himself is about the woman you grew up knowing, the sitcom wife. Uh, she, you know, is super hot and married to some funny that's with air quotes guy. Uh, but for once on our show, when she walks out of that sitcom, we follow her into her dark single camera, gritty life where she, uh, she's pretty miserable. 
Um, and and Annie, the, so, Annie Murphy is our star, who is just hmm. a doll and fantastic. And I can't wait for people to see just how much she can do. Yeah, she plays both of those facets of the character so incredibly well. Uh, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, so yeah. we should say, like the the sort of um, the gimmick of the show. I don't know. That's a bad word to use, but Device. like the. Yeah, the device of the show is to have these sitcom uh, sections in a very sitcom-y sort of three, four camera format. And then you see the multicam when she goes off on her own. Um, tell me a little bit about pitching this show, please. And like, how do you how do you juggle all these facets of it and still get across the story that you want to tell? So I have the most obnoxious story, which is I just didn't pitch it. I, I had, I was on a, an AMC mini room at the time. They were still doing those. And uh, it was for a show that didn't end up being made, but I was a low level writer on that. And the executives uh, wanted to, one executive wanted to meet me to make sure I wasn't a disaster. And uh, about two hours before my general meeting with them, I got a call from a manager that said, uh, I guess they just read your script now the meeting's about buying it. Do you have anything prepared? <laughs> and I said, um, well, no, Brandy, this is my third meeting ever. I have nothing prepared. And she said, okay, have fun. Mm. And so, <laughs> so I went, I did not have fun. I thought that I blew it. Uh, <laughs> they, they asked what I thought for a second season. And I don't even remember what I said. I think I blacked out. Um, and then about three weeks later, I got a call that they wanted to buy it. Uh, and so I will say the, I mean, of the many wonderful things about that horrible story, um, my one that kind of keeps coming back to me is just that I found partners who inherently wanted to do this show. I didn't have to convince anybody. They, it was their idea to do it. They read this thing that was basically a sample and said, yeah, this is really weird. We're interested. And they completely understood the point of the show from the beginning too, which is, you know, it's not just a different lighting scheme. It's not just different cameras. It's supposed to be a metaphor. You know, it's, it's, it's about that guy who gets that benefit of the doubt and that laugh track behind him, his entire life, the guy who gets to be a boy until he's 60. And, and it's about the parts of women that we hide, that we think are flaws that are actually just us being human, that we feel like, don't belong in that public facing side of ourselves. So I got I got very, very lucky in about 800 different ways in making this show. Well, that's I mean, listen, it, it for sure happens. And they you wrote a script that spoke to people uh, who, who wanted to make it. Um, I want to follow up on the thematic elements in a second um, after we sort of go around. But I do want to ask one follow up, which is um, and, and I had a hunch you had written this as a sample because it feels like it walks a tightrope, right? Like it's it's such a specific tone. It's such specific voices, which the best stuff is. Um, and that had to come across. Um, what were the iterations of working on that sample script? Like how long did it take? How many drafts did you do? When did you feel like you got it right? I, I cannot count how many drafts I've done at this point. I wrote it almost four years ago to the day. Uh, I looked it up recently in uh, in my text to see when I texted my brother, like, can this be 
a whole sample? Is it just a scene? Now it's a show. Um, <laughs> but it, it's taken on a lot of different forms, but the germ of the idea has always been the same. Um, at, in my first draft, she, Allison, was really unhappy and knew it. Uh, she was a woman who was stuck there because she thought she was a New Englander. She thought that things just couldn't get better. So why should she try? And then, you know, the inciting incident was different. And and now what we've come to figure out and that I really love is that she denies her rage until it, she can't anymore. Uh, and that that is something that I really, really understand. And did that <laughs> did that um, come out of the development process with AMC or was that in the script that they read? Uh, it was in the development process. Uh, the one that they read, uh, she was going out doing coke every night. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's great. I mean, this gives her a journey to go on and we're along yeah. for it. Um, Annie, let's talk about physical um, and yeah. pitching and selling this show. Um, again, will you give us like the two sentence uh, pitch on the show and then tell us about the process of selling it? Sure. Um... The show is thematically really similar to your show, Valerie. And um, I love your show, by the way. It's amazing. Um, I um, I got to see it last night, and it was it was really thrilling. Um, um, it's really brave and and, and important and cool. Um, my my show is about a woman who is leading a divided life in real life. You know, she has a, a part of herself that she keeps secret. Um, and it is about how we start to watch her integrate herself in the world and, um, you know, become become a, an, a fully integrated self. And she does that through the medium of aerobics and uh, eventually turning that into a into a business. And so it's set in 1981 at kind of the dawn of both aerobics and, and videotape technology. And I had a, also a really unconventional process from which I'm not sure there's much to learn because I also feel like it was a lightning in a bottle kind of once in a lifetime thing, which is that I also wrote it on spec. Um, I wrote it without a great expectation that anything would come of it, not as a sample, just as something I wanted to write. And I had uh, partners also who kind of believed in it, cared about it, and uh, it came to Apple through a longtime relationship with an executive there who, you know, we had sort of been through the trenches together and, and um, in, in kind of the earlier phases of, earlier and less inclusive phases of the business is what I would say. And then we were both in this position to make something else happen. And, um, and she really championed it at Apple. And so we got to make it. So again, you know, wrote it out of my own sense of frustration with a period in my life. And then, and then um, amazingly have gotten to make it. Hey, can I say something? Cause the women are so amazing with me on this panel, but I want to point out like I think that, I mean, I actually kind of like don't believe that anybody deserves anything, but like everybody gets lucky to some extent. These women are also talking about work that they did over their entire careers to a certain extent, right? You knew that partner because right. you knew the trenches. So That's it's right. really interesting to describe it always as, you know, women do have a tendency to play it off. Oh, it was completely like a totally, you know, something that I just got lucky about. And I do think that for everybody, 
everybody has a combination of luck. It's the right time. It's like, guys, you find those people. But I mean, it's not like, you know, you guys were working. You did the scripts. You wrote the scripts. Yeah, you know, we, we like actually did it for free. You do that. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So I think um, you're right. That's a really good point. I mean, things happen because of the accumulation of yeah, yes. relationships and, you know, yeah. people knowing what you're capable of and, and, and you know, even yeah. just having the idea to do it though, for me, if I'm being honest, like having the courage to write something that felt um, mm-hmm. just challenging and, and, and dark and, mm-hmm. and difficult was, was something I had with the help of great peer support and friends, you know, and, and like, and you I also, sorry, it. I really wanted to call that out as well for people who are listening. Cause I really think that's the critical thing. Like, yeah to me, creative work is like sex. In other words, if you pick the right partner, like no amount of foibles and and like missteps is gonna keep it from being anything other than an ultimately meaningful experience that yields happiness and goodness for all. But if you pick the wrong partner, no amount of technical proficiency or expertise is gonna keep it from feeling anything but deadening. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) especially when you're talking about making a show, it's like so many things have to come together. It's like, if a random stranger came up to you and asked you to move, help them move, but they don't know where their new house is and it's July and 105 degrees. And it's like, if that was your sister, if it's somebody you care about, if it's your friend, you'll be like, stop drinking so much. And like, yeah, I guess, you know what I mean? (laughs) But if it's somebody you don't know, you're never gonna do it at the first obstacle. You're gonna say, I'm out. And that's what happens, I think, in a lot of the relationships of writers and studios and producers. Anyway, just wanted to say that. Yeah. Because that's an element in both of your stories as well. And in mine. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think in a lot of ours, right? Like you you put in the work and it doesn't always show when the success comes 10 years later, two years later, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, Lauren, let's talk about uh, Panic for a sec. Um, I know, uh, I, I feel like the the two sentence uh, description is it sort of a white trash Hunger Games. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, kind of. I mean, I think in some ways that does it a disservice because actually like the arc of the, the, it's funny. I mean, the arc of the the character is not about the game at all. Obviously, I don't believe that there's anything heroic about not being afraid to die. Dying's the easiest thing in the world. That's why everybody does it. <laughs> um, but, um, and I was actually thinking today, reflecting today about this like incredible polarization of responses. Cause I mean, really, you know, it's about a girl who has to learn that no one else has the right to tell her story, right? That she has the right to kind of define and tell her own story. And I was thinking about like, it really is meant to speak to, and I think does speak to, is based on the novel of mine that came back out all the way in 2014. Anybody who's lived with a question and a doubt about their worth as a hero and their worth as like a narrator, right? Because we all inherit stories about ourselves, about who we are, about how much space we should be taking up. And I was thinking like, yeah, of course, if you're like a critic who like arbitrates worth for other people's stories for a living, you've never, you don't necessarily have that as a narrative lens, as like, that somebody could have those doubts to such an extent that it would be the complete arc of a TV show, in which case you wouldn't understand what you were watching because by the end, it really isn't about the game. You know what I mean? Um, So, I mean, it's about teens in basically a non-wealthy town uh, who take a dollar a day from their everyday schools in session, pull it and plan a game of like fear, right? Challenges of fear, crossing a highway blindfolded, things like that over the summer. 
Yeah. So, and I had a similar, mm. similar, well, I mean, again, similar in that I think what's really interesting to hear is that there's, I mean, now I wish we had more people in the podcast who had like actually pitched something because I have like doubts about pitches in general. Um, so for anybody listening, my problem with pitches is that it's like what happens when you ask a friend if they've seen a movie and they tell you every detail and you want to shoot them. Like it doesn't work the same way as a script. Like scripts work through emotions. TV works through emotions. So anyway, but I, you know, I'd come to Hollywood for my business, you know, for about seven years. Um, and even though I didn't have the right to not work with people or jump through hoops or whatever, you know, they weren't my people, you know? And like, look, man, if you ever have to convince a dude that you're worth dating, you're not going to date, right? Like it's not going to be happy. So, or a girl or non-binary, like, so if they're not people who understand what you're trying to do, I just don't think it's possible. So over that time, I found three people who understood what I was trying to do. And, um, and they gave me the chance to kind of prove that I could write a show. Um, without ever having written for TV or film. Um, and so I basically had to do all the work in advance uh, to do it. Cause I wrote every episode too. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, but it was a really important to me to do it. So, you know, I did. And I'm really grateful to them. They were great. They would, they took a huge risk. So. How did it find a home on Amazon? Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's where my people were. I mean, like, okay. it's funny. Like, I mean, one of them was just, I walked into a meeting I'd never spoken to her before. And she turned out to have been promoted from the system the day before. But like, I just knew <laughs> she was a unicorn. You know what I mean? Like I was like, and I stopped mm. the meeting to say, I can't wait until you own this company someday, whoever you are, right? And, you know, she's this incredible, I mean, she is, she's a unicorn. By the way, that did not endear me to the woman sitting across from me <laughs> who, who ran the department. Who was but, the you know, boss? She, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was yeah. before Jen Sulky came in. Yeah, that was before Jen Sulky came in. And, you know, that woman's gone. You know what I mean? Like she was gone months later. Phoebe Zimmer is amazing. She kind of championed it. And then I can't even, that was a real zeitgeist situation. I mean, not zeitgeist, kismet. Like mm -hmm. the person who I'd loved, one guy who'd been a producer who tried to buy it years ago, ended up at Amazon and at the head of drama. And then somebody mm -hmm. I worked with at Illumination, because I consulted for Illumination for a while, she ended up deciding for the first time in her life to do TV and she ended up on the panic team. And those were like the only three people I liked. <laughs> so it was really, it was kind of amazing. Um, that's unbelievable. And, and again, like you were telling a story that was worthwhile. You were, you know, you had shown that you had the goods and, and you know, you were I mean, then given this opportunity. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think, again, everybody should always attribute, it's an incredible blessing to do what we do. Like, I don't understand. I mean, we're, we make things for a living, right? Um, things that we love. Um, and I mean, we're like one step away from owning Etsy boutiques. There's glue guns involved at different fields. You know what I mean? Um, but, mm -hmm. but also, yeah, like, you know, I definitely did a lot of work as these women did as, you know, and to the extent one is more important than the other, I, I, you know, who knows, but, um, but both are definitely true. And I did, I had to write the entire season basically before, um, wow. I wrote four, four scripts, like a million times, eight Bibles before it was even greenlit. Um, wow. so, you know, that's incredible. Um, and the show's so good. I will I'll urge folks to check it out. Um, because it does, you know, it's not just the sort of 
glib description that I gave earlier, it's about something. I mean, by the way, white trash program sounds great, but like, (laughs) (laughs) but but it really is about something. Like, this is a story that clearly you were compelled to tell, and that's true of all of the series that we're talking about. Shows very often get noticed or get sold based on the uh, the bells and whistles, um, but really they're about something. They're they're you're telling a story that you want to tell. Um, and Valerie, let's start with you on this and talk about like why was this the best way to tell this story about this woman? So. I mean, the first thing that that came to me for this show was that image of her leaving a sitcom and, uh, you know, going in through a swinging door into her kitchen and all of a sudden the laugh track stops, you're up in her face and she's miserable and you, it's not that she wasn't when she was in the other room, it's that you weren't close enough, you weren't paying attention. Um, and, And in my original just image, all I could think of was her staring straight into the camera and saying, I fucking hate my husband. Uh, and that's sort of where mm-hmm. I started. And and in some ways, I know that the worst version of this show is is the logline of it. Like, it, it, it's just a gimmick uh, if on, on its surface. It could right. very, very easily just be a visual device. And I wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case. And there were two things that made this this story sort of like worth telling to me and, and got me excited about, I mean, excited, please. I was working, I was writing, it's never exciting, but um, <laughs> it made it less painful. And one was that um, it be about, it be a metaphor uh, that it has to, that format switch has to mean something. And like I said earlier, it's that, Kevin, Kevin's get benefit, uh, get a benefit of the doubt. They, they just, they never have to suffer the consequences of their like funny actions. The, the people around them always do. And if we actually thought for a second about like, what have we been laughing at for the last, like think about like honeymooners to the moon. Like what have we been laughing at? Yeah. And watch any, any sitcom from the last 50 years, you, I hope after you see the show, you'll start to look at those jokes differently and think, oh my God, he, you know, on King of Queens, uh, Doug hires a dog walker to walk his wife's dad at like to walk him around the block. That's, <laughs> that's his idea of like elder care. And, and that's, I was like, wait, that's, that's completely fucked up. So I wanted to make sure we did that. After I just got a text that said I was in somebody's sex dream who I barely talk to. I think that's relevant to this conversation. Literally, okay. I just have to go on. <laughs> do you, um, Valerie, do you, have you ever worked on a multicam? I'm so curious. I have not. I yeah. have not. I just grew up, I grew up watching them. And yeah. I had written sort of comedy uh, before before this, I, but I'd worked in drama because my first writer's job ever was a writer's PA on Masters of Sex where I was just thrilled to get l- lunches for writers every day. I was thrilled to be around yeah. them and to like be able to sit in the back of the room and see how they break story. They promoted me to writer's assistant, which I'm just forever grateful for because I think it is one of the, other than mine, like the best job. I loved that job so dearly. Um, and so yeah, I came up in drama, wrote comedy on the side. And then for this, it, it, it was sort of shocking how 
well, I knew the rhythms just sort of inherently. Like I never thought of myself as a setup punchline person, but I wrote I wrote the pilot alone. Uh, and you know, uh, once we got a room, we got a bunch of sitcom writers in there who were just wonderful, but also very smart people who could do more than that. Um, and and we really figured it out. Uh, but the other the other thing that made the story worth telling to me was realizing that it's not actually about a toxic marriage. It's about how women can get each other out of toxic situations because the true heart of the show to me is Allison and this other woman, Patty, her neighbor. They're two women who share the sitcom space, but also when they walk out, do get that breath of fresh air, they become real people. And it turns out that they are both miserable for in very different ways and have coped with it in very different ways. And because they share this male dominated space and have for 10 years, they don't know each other. Their savior was across the room from, from them for 10 years and they had no idea. And I've done that with women. I've completely made snap judgments about people that last years when, when they could have been very good friends of mine. And uh, that to me, once, once I realized that that's what I was writing to, that I was breaking a relationship between women that's when I was like oh okay I can do that I can do that yeah that's, that's the, such a powerful part of your pilot that moment I that's I really locked in went oh this is what it's about it's about these two women yeah. and yeah. Um, whenever I think whenever I, that was it was really powerful mm. thank you whenever I yeah. kind of need to remember the heart of the show I think of that scene of them on a porch it's just those two women together sitting next yeah. to each other on a porch. And and our plot plot is like pretty minimal. I, I have so little interest in it. It seems on the outside, if you, you know, look at the trailer, it seems like a lot of stuff's happening. And it, it appears that way too. But if you actually think about the moves that happen in every episode, it's very small because we want to use a little bit of plot to talk about character and theme and then get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something I want to uh, pick up on in a minute. But um, Annie, let's talk about physical for a sec. And again, you know, you're telling this very sort of personal story that you're compelled to tell. Why is the rise of aerobics the right backdrop? You know, how did those yeah. that sort of glossy or I wouldn't say glossy, but the trappings of that become the yeah. means by which to tell the story? Well, I think um, for me, um, it was a little bit of a Trojan horse in a way, because I think, you know, I, I, and I, and I responded to, you know, Valerie's showing this similarly that you have this device that you allows you entrance. And then, but, but once that kind of comes into the, into the room, it's got to turn in some unexpected way. And she certainly does that. And I, that was the goal for me too, was to kind of take, um, I, I think the, what the period um, and the circumstances of the show gave me was like a little bit of distance mm -hmm. from my own experience also, because I was writing about my own, like very lifelong adult, embarrassing struggle with eating disorders mm -hmm. and, and specifically bulimia. And so, you know, I didn't want to write about myself. I needed a, a like a big distancing factor. Um, I don't think I knew that when I sat down to write it, but I can, with some perspective, I see that. So I think that the period sort of gave me that. And I also just, I think in order to feel like, you know, so many of us, I, I can only speak for myself as a writer, like I have so many ideas, right? That go in right in the toilet that do not work because they don't, 
get traction in my head. And so the thing that I always start with is I'm, who am I saying always that I often start with (laughs) is something I want to say, right? Like I have something I want to wrestle with. I have a theme I want to wrestle with and then I, and then characters and then what is the circumstance? You know, they all just, everything has to start to have traction and snowball and feel engaging both from a plot perspective, from a character revealing perspective, from a, from a theme perspective, right? So this started to come together. It was these threads. It was like, okay, I'm going to tell the truth about this thing that I've been hiding from everyone forever. And I'm going to tell it through this metaphor of a woman who kind of looks in the mirror and what she sees is what we see of her is completely at odds with how she sees herself, right? So this divided self where there's this beautiful surface and this hideous voice, you know? And then this world, this changing world of 1981, where we're at the kind of end of the seventies and the woman's movement has really failed her and, and her peers, you know, politically. So this progressive liberal world she's in in public is in private, regressive, painful, oppressive to her. And she needs a new, she she needs something. She's tired of being, feeling, you know, miserable, divided, hiding who she really is. And she sort of, she happens into this outlet for it. She happens into this place where she's in her body, where she feels powerful and, you know, events kind of snowball from there. So it's a no story. Wonder you know what I started saying, but <laughs> <laughs> no wonder you wrote it on spec. I, I feel like the hardest or like, it's so much easier to tap into that stuff when it's you alone in a room and no one is watching. At least that's what yeah. I've found. It's yeah. just so much safer to say like, nobody's ever going to read this. I can say that it's going to go in a drawer. And then suddenly someone's saying it out loud on a set in Massachusetts and you <laughs> want to crawl under a rock. Yeah, I sort of sat under a tree, cried, and then started writing. It was like very much, very private, you know, <laughs> and then shared it with like a, sa- a few safe people. And then from there, and people kind of connected. And people routinely connected to the stuff that I was most scared of, mm-hmm. you know, across the board, except for um, uh, variety of reviewers, apparently. But the people who <laughs> <laughs> really connected to the things that I was most scared of. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that was, you know, rewarding. Um, well, I, I mean, I've pitched, I pitched and too. sold a, a lot of things in, in my life, different processes mm-hmm. that have been perfectly good and great. But this was just something where, yeah, I just wrote something I needed to write, felt compelled to write, um, didn't know if I would share, you know. Well, I think people, like you said, the next thing you know, people are, people are, you know, it's a, it's a huge production. <laughs> you can't believe it. And uh, And, you know, there were times when I was, I feel like, very, very um, committed to it, proud of it, the leader of it. And there are times when like I would hide in my car. I mean, legitimately for real, like there are scenes we would shoot and they would say, where's Annie? And I would be in my car (laughs) hiding (laughs) because it was scary. It was scary to tell these stories and do this stuff. Did you also make it during, during COVID? Yes. I found the mask very helpful because I could be near tears as mm. people were talking about my own experiences 
very coldly and and I could just hide yeah hide my face yeah. and, and and sort of be very miserable all on my own <laughs> it's true the the mask it's hard to take the mask off sometimes <laughs> it was a convenient hiding place yep. but sometimes it just wasn't enough <laughs> <laughs> um Lauren let's talk about um panic and again you know you're telling this very personal story this very uh you know, small story to this, uh, compared to sort of the big trappings that the plot entails. Why, why are these games the right metaphor? I mean, you know, it was based on a book I wrote. It's the only book I've ever written that I, first of all, love, but also didn't understand when I was writing it. Um, but, you know, I mean, in some ways it's an allegory, right? Um, you know, to write about yourself again, you need distance. Um, it's modeled after I grew up with my father is like a young mean scholar and stuff like that. I've read a lot of uh, fairy tales. The Complete Grimms was my favorite when I was in fifth grade. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's an archetype of a person sets out to, I mean, it's actually, there's, I think, a, oh God, I'm going to forget the name. There's a famous opera by Wagner anyway, where, you know, you set out and you have to face a series of challenges and ultimately, you know, um, there's a dragon in mine, it's a tiger. Um, so, um, you know, in my, I mean, so it was an allegory and it was actually based on, I mean, it is, it's a very personal story. I remember when I was a teenager, I was 18, when I consciously had the thought that I was going to break myself of everything I was afraid of. Um, and I did almost break myself. Um, and so, you know, and it was ultimately in realizing that the particular shape of my fear that itself had been inherited as a paradigm, right? And then I had to step outside mm -hmm. of those fears um, entirely um, and be in a new story. Um, and so, but I mean, that was, so I always say like, if you, if you took panic, extended it over 10 years, you know, the non-allegorical version is, is really the journey of, of my life. And it's interesting. I mean, what's painful about it is like, you know, it's funny, like white, I mean, I'm not, sorry. It sounds like I'm like endlessly harping on you saying this, but you're not, you've like inherited it from other people. Like white trash hunger games is in so many ways of thinking about it. You know, when Valerie said it was the worst part of her pitch, not only is it the worst part of my pitch, but it's actually a contradiction of the entire purpose of the show. It, namely that literally the entire purpose of my, of that show or why I write for young people is like, no matter what happens to you, whether you're raped, whether people tell you you're ugly and worthless, no matter what other people's stories are, like you don't have to p pay for their ugliness. You don't have to die, right? You don't have to be willing to risk your life. Like you are worth more. You, you don't have, your worth is not an act of mass arbitration, right? Um, it's a, it's a product of how, what we choose to do in this world, period. And we all deserve to be here. Um, so, and also like, and if you're poor, right, like doesn't actually correlate to worth guys. Like that wasn't a thing just because we use the same language and terminology. Like, you know, your actual dollars don't actually buy you any more significantly like importance or value, you know, I mean, the world disagrees with me in many cases. Um, and again, since that's the case, it's really an individual's job 
to courageously at least be somebody who disagrees with the world back, right? Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, it's been interesting because, uh, you know, there's, again, if you don't understand that that's the story or you really don't believe in that story, you know, watching Panic is probably a kind of vertiginous experience of nausea because it doesn't mean anything. There's no arc and journey. And I think that is what some people experience. It's that it's senseless, right? Um, what's the story? Mm. You know, it's not about the game in the end. And, you know, they're, they're, I got a review where, you know, expressing confusion about that by the end, it's, it's as though it loses more and more interest in the game, but it can't see because it can't see why, <laughs> right? Even though I will say all teenagers seem to get it. So it can't be like that hard. <laughs> You know what I mean? Teens. That's huge. I would love <laughs> to get right for them, right? I mean, by the way, feeling mutual, buddy. Like, you know what I mean? So, I mean, really, actually, my fear came from my fear. I only had one fear at the time, and it was of of I feared wanting, like wanting still to be loved. And I feared men um who had the right to kind of take that away from me or give it to me. So I became a sex worker. <laughs> um, and that's not, you know, look, I'm not gonna get into that, but I will say like you know, in a way, it's kind of like what happens at the end of the pilot. There's a false belief about becoming a hero, but it's in the story and in a game that you have not selected and that doesn't care very much about your life, you know? Mm. And so, you know, and and that's what the show is about. And look, when I sold it- That I'm, feels a lot like Hollywood. I mean, that's a great description well, of Hollywood. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if you meant that, but I mean, that is like, if I could define what this- World I is, 100% know. agree. It takes and I a long time to see that, to see that, yeah. oh, that's what this is. Right. And so no, I mean, within that, absolutely. you can find your voice, you can find opportunities, you can break through, but yeah. ultimately no, that's what it is. Structurally, that's, that's how it works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's my experience. And then, I mean, look, Jen Sulky, when she came into Amazon, I mean, she's pretty, she's amazing. Um, and, you know, I had a, you know, after all of this stuff, I mean, I had a meeting with her and, you know, I'm, I'm like a weird, like pseudo in the world, like wilding child. Like I like have, you know what I mean? Like, I'm just not a normal person. I mean, everybody says that sounds like (laughs) really I'm not. Um, so, so like, you know, I went into this thing and I ended up, I felt so passionately about this, um, because it had been somewhat misunderstood by the top, top, like Seattle, like presumably Jeff Bezos. I don't know. Um, as, (laughs) as as a game as a show that would be like great the valiant thing is going to be that somebody wins this game by driving a car at somebody else right and i was so like morally offended by that anyway i ended up going in everybody was terrified they were like don't speak let the other executives let joe ruff speak and i was like there's a quantum physics teaches us there's a universe for everything except for one where i don't speak in meetings um and uh and i ended up like you know i talked about such difficult things from my teenage life, my sister and drugs and, you know, sexual abuse and whatever. I mean, they were just hiding their faces. Um, and I wasn't thinking about it being real. I just really wanted to correct that misapprehension, right? Or misunderstanding, not misapprehension. And at the end, you know, she said, she was like, she stopped at some point. She was like, Laura, I'm going to green light the show, right? And I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? She did. Um, And that I am grateful for, because that is a person who actually believes in stories. And I will say also, too, for people listening, look, you know, both of you, this was something you followed a voice. 
right? And it was something you feel passionately about. And I do think that ultimately I would like to believe not that everything, there's so much great stuff out there that doesn't succeed in the market in the way one hopes. That's part of it. You know what I mean? But it's like, you have to believe, and I do believe that that love for something, that meaning, it gets through the screen. It reaches the viewer. And if you can find the right people, they will just understand it, you know? Um, yeah, sure. I've, I've always sure. said that my only goal in making this show or like my greatest, greatest goal is that I find one, probably, let's be honest, woman out there who watches it and says, oh my God, it's not just me. Yeah. Like I, I, there's this feeling that I get when my friends and I have like maybe more than two glasses of wine where I will say something that I find horribly embarrassing about myself, but I'm a little bit drunk so I can. And then three other women will say, well, I do that too. And the relief I get is almost unlike anything else because uh, I I definitely don't think I'm I'm normal, Lauren, and I have a problem with that all the time. I I feel like I should be, mm-hmm. and that I'm I'm defective and weird, and I mean I've I've that's that's like the entire the entire show. And so there was one day on set where I can only imagine what our crew thought we were making. I mean, three days a week we were making like a bright loud multicam with weird laughers nine people paid to laugh like 25 feet away all masked and distance it was and then the other the other like half it was like two ladies talking about their feelings but i i i I don't know what they thought we were making but uh one day on set the trailer came out and so many women came up to me and they were like this is what we're doing Mm. Oh, actors like don't know what they're doing, even though they read the script. It's so funny. They like don't know what they're. You, they can't. I mean, I understand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That was the funniest thing. When that same thing happened with mine. They were like, "Wait, I thought it was going to be a shit show," and I was like, "That was just my management of the set." <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> um, and by the way, Valerie, I do want to yeah. say, for the record, this is also something important to me. If any like young people or people have doubts, like yeah, I I definitely am defective and weird. That's not the point. The point is, who cares? Like, I guess what oh, I'm saying, I, I really I resonated with that. But like, I think that some of the narrative out there about what kind of person you have to be to be loved, to write a script, to, you know, be attract. It's like, it's not, you know, the rest of the entire world isn't like fearless, right? Before they do something, right? Like that's not, they're not totally confident and loving their life before they find a partner. Like that's just not, true you know what i mean so i just wanted to pick up on that essay but i think that that's an amazing amazing thing and i'm glad that you're getting it and it's it is like otherwise for me that kind of like knowing that you've reached somebody it counteracts at least 10 like each one counteracts at least 10 days of pure brutal bad things happening one thing after another (laughs) yeah exactly and you can't really protect yourself from that. I mean, I definitely felt that. I, I haven't gotten a chance to see Lauren's show yet, although that's I'm gonna do that immediately. Also with my 13 year <laughs> old I know I have such a great week ahead of me. My 13 year old kid who um who is gonna love it. Um mm-hmm. and um and educates me about all the cool stuff. Has probably already <laughs> seen it actually. Um yeah. but but I um yeah, I feel very much like this is, you know, fear has to be your, your, your kind of friend and co-pilot. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If it's not there, then I don't know that you're um, really 
hard enough. Trying hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. Trying, trying yeah. Hard enough to, you know, so I, I felt that too. Yeah. I think, I think hard that's important. Um, and unfortunately we have to leave it here. Uh, this is no. a phenomenal conversation. <laughs> um, I want to ask very briefly what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your room, your loved ones, your friends? Um, Annie, let's start with you. Well, I'm watching the show Hacks, which I love. It's a female, um, you know, relationships, unexpected female friendships across generations. It's from my world, longtime world. It's kind of pulling a lid off of issues and themes that, you know, I felt for many years. So I'm just a big fan of that that show right now. Yeah, that's a great Loving one. It. Lauren, what are you watching? Um, so I went deep on animated stuff this year. Um, and so there's a couple of things. So one, I just finished the boys season one and season two, which is, I am yeah. so sad because I tried to write a novel of that exact concept and couldn't do it. Like it just never came together. And I'm like, well, great. They did it better and I'll never be able to write it. Um, <laughs> I love that. Um, and then also, I mean, I, I think it, it's originally for kids, but it's so good. Um, the last airbender and then there's, um, on, which I'm obsessed with. So, um, it's a show about, well, anyway, it's called The Last Airbender. I think it's really popular. Yeah, so my I, kids yeah. love, it's my kids. Yeah, I know. I've never seen it. I mean, literally, like, <laughs> this is where, I've also been watching a show, Bluey, which is legitimately for, like, seven-year-olds. Uh, <laughs> but it's in short clips. And, hey, man, COVID does a, does a lot to you. But Utopia and The Boys <laughs> were my two biggest binge watches, um, both the American and the Brit version of Utopia this year. Oh, great. Uh, thank you. And, Valerie, what are you watching? Uh, I think I, like everyone else, watch Mirror of Easttown. Uh, I went to college in, oh. in Villanova with that <gasps> awful accent. Wooder. <laughs> I, I think into an like, erg competition at Villanova, literally for erging. <laughs> it, uh, it, it really, it spoke to me. And then recently I've gone back and I've been watching all of old In Treatment uh, since the oh. new one came out. And they are, I mean... It's my dream to just write two characters talking to each other for 25 pages. So mm. I, I respect it so much and I think it's so brilliantly done. Uh, it's been a, a wonderful thing to, to binge while trying not to look at reviews. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. I, well, Thank I will you say so much. Now, I'm yeah. so excited. Is when in physical, it's, is it out already? No, it premieres on June 18th. Okay. Oh, yeah. right. My sister's birthday. Well, I'm super excited yeah. um, about watching both of your shows. So that's what I would like to say Thank that I'm you. watching now because it will be yes, Yeah, back I, at you guys. Yeah. Okay, I can't so wait. Thank you all so much yeah. for being here. I will urge everyone again, check out Physical Panic and Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Uh, oh, all available. Say that name. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank, thank you, you all. for saying Kevin Can Fuck Himself because that is correct. Yeah, yeah, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're not messing around. Hashtag. Yeah, exactly. Um, all of you, please come back and chat with us again. I feel like we barely scratched Thanks, the surface. Uh, and this is a terrific group. Thank you so much. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thank you. It's so nice to meet Thanks you guys. So much. Yes, you Good too. To you're amazing. Guys. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.